Welcome to the first episode of Brewing Microservices, a filibuster podcast hosted by me, Christopher Mickledon, and David Husto. In each episode, we're going to take an academic paper that both of us haven't read yet, we're going to read that paper, and then have an interesting discussion about that paper in terms of the academic research, the implications of that research in industry, and the thoughts about how it might be used, and what the interesting research directions are. For our first paper, we're going to talk about the Nimbus paper, which is a paper about a serverless programming model that aims to provide a better developer experience in the local environment for building serverless applications. We hope you enjoy. In this episode, we talked about the Nimbus paper. The Nimbus paper is published at ICSI 2020 in the New Ideas and Emerging Results track. The New Ideas and Emerging Results track is evaluated primarily on value, whether the problem is worth exploring, impact, the potential for disruption of the current practice, soundness, the validity of the rationale, and quality, the overall quality of the paper's writing. Therefore, authors weren't required to write an extensive evaluation section and were primarily focused on visionary forward-looking research or thought-provoking reflections. That said, I feel like potentially in this uh, episode you're about to hear, I was a little bit overly critical of the evaluation section that was presented. And given that the authors weren't required to write such an evaluation section, it may have been presented a little bit unfairly. So I just wanted to preface our episode with that information. We'll provide links to both the paper and the track uh, in the show notes. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to the first uh, the first episode of of our podcast, um, the 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 filibuster podcast. I guess we're calling this first series uh, "Brewing Microservices," where we're going to talk about microservices and serverless programming and all sorts of things around the web and mobile application development space. Um, so we'll just get started and introduce everybody. I'm Christopher Micklejohn. I'm a PhD student or PhD candidate at Carnegie Mellon University, and uh, I've been working on uh, microservices for the last four and a half years. And prior to that, I, I worked in industry a bunch uh, at companies like Basho and, and Mesosphere and, and places like that, working on distributed programming. So I think a lot about distributed programming. I, I spent a lot of time in protocols, but now my interests are um really in the microservice and serverless space okay so uh now i'll let david introduce himself hello hello uh yeah my name is david justo uh i'm an engineer in the azure functions group at microsoft um in the past uh well technically i'm still uh quite a programming languages nerd so i'm interested in everything about uh programmability programming abstractions uh and how to make it easier for people to write the programs they mean um So, yeah, that's why I think serverless is an exciting area to work on. Uh, I should say, uh, obviously, um, you know, I'm speaking for myself, uh, and that allows you to get all my hottest takes. Uh, But, yeah, I just wanted to get that out of the way. Yeah, obviously. Um, And, uh, you know, I can just say whatever I want, I guess, because I'm I'm an academic, I guess, or or a partial academic, or I don't know what you really call a PhD candidate, but... um, Something like that, yeah. Okay. (laughs) So, um, so today for this like kind of first episode, effectively a trial run, but we'll publish it probably. And um, 
We're talking about a random paper. Um, so we wanted to talk about serverless to kind of set the stage and, and talk about something where maybe we can have some hot takes and talk about something that's slightly interesting or, or relevant to other people. Um, so what I did was I basically random, I went to ICSI and I looked at like ICSI 2020, 2021, 2022, and I just tried to find a hot take paper about serverless. So for mm. those of you who don't know, ICSI is kind of the premier software engineering venue. It's the International Conference on Software Engineering. And uh, it's, it's basically uh, my department, uh, formerly ISR, uh, which is now S3D, is, is mainly focused on software engineering. And so this is kind of the main venue that um, a lot of research on software engineering gets published. And so we kind of try to hunt and peck, look for the distributed systems papers in there. And ICSI was on my mind um, just because I had recently attended. It was in Pittsburgh uh, a few months ago, and uh, I thought it would be an interesting paper. So um, I subjected David to this paper. And the paper we're going to talk about, and we'll link this in the show notes today, is called, uh, it's on a system called Nimbus, um, subtitled Improving the Developer Experience for, for Serverless Applications. Um, and this paper is uh, public, written by Robert Chatley from uh, Imperial College London and Thomas Allerton uh, from Starling Bank in the UK. So, um, David, you want to want to tell us what this paper is about? Uh, yeah, totally. Um, yeah, I mean, for starters, I was, I was really glad we were uh, starting with a paper on serverless. Um, so, yeah, Nimbus, um, as I understood it. It starts by identifying uh, four pain points in the development experience for serverless. Uh, in particular, they point out that serverless functions are notoriously hard to test, which I agree with, uh, that the deployment process is difficult and often leads to discovery of errors, uh, that, that serverless uh, can often cause the fear of vendor lock-in, uh, which I agree with, uh, and that... Um, Cold start is a challenge, right? The people, people who are deploying serverless functions uh, because of the ephemeral nature of the machines in which they're running uh, can sometimes have less than ideal uh, performance when, when first invoked after a long while. Uh, so it more or less starts by identifying these pain points and says, well, Nimbus is a framework to address all of this. Uh, and you know, it, it essentially presents a framework uh, for... Uh, Lambda functions in AWS, in particular for Java, uh, that uses a system of annotations on top of serverless functions uh, that allows you to hook into a framework that allows for local development. Uh, it allows for uh, dynamically um, checking the validity of your configuration files. Um, and it also does some fancy jar analysis work uh, to try to reduce the, the size of your payloads, which apparently imp impacts uh, cold start. Um, so it's pretty cool. Uh, it's supposed to be quite uh, general. So the techniques described here uh, are supposed to work irrespective of language and irrespective um, of vendor, uh, which is rather cool. Uh, and they, you know, they, go, they go on to explain how this works. They go on to explain that uh, they have a chat application that you can check out that shows this working in action. Um, and that the folks over at the InfoQ community uh, seem to like it. So that uh, that seems to be Nimbus. Okay, cool. Um, so for maybe for the listeners who, who don't really know about serverless, specifically since you work on serverless, uh, maybe you can just kind of explain the, the general idea of, of 
what it is and why you would want to use it? Yeah. Uh, well, th the main pitch for serverless is that um, when you're trying to deploy code to the cloud, um, you know, traditionally, you have to think about not just your business logic, but also the VMs that are going to be hosting your application uh, and the management around, uh, you know, the size, the size of your cluster, uh, the OS, security patches. Uh, there's all sorts of infrastructure that you have to manage now in the cloud in addition to your business logic. Uh, and, and the pitch of serverless is, forget about all that infrastructure. Just give me your business logic as code, uh, and your vendor uh, will manage uh, the dynamic allocation of resources to run that code for you. And so, in other words, it's supposed to be, in a way, as high level of a development experience as you can get in the cloud. Just give me your business logic, and I'll take care of invocation, resource management, uh, OS patches, security, uh, and all of that jazz. Um, okay. Yeah. And and so the the other kind of important bit here that I, I don't think you mentioned that I'll, I'll just kind of briefly mention here, because I think a lot of people forget is that um, at least I forgot it and I worked on serverless at Microsoft too. And yeah. so uh, one of the things here is the pay, pay as you go billing really at, right. at the level of the function. And so for a lot of people, that's really important because for idle server instances or VM instances or whatever, you're not, you're not paying for these idle instances. You're basically paying for like the function invocation time uh, mm -hmm. for an individual request. And so sometimes that ends up being good. Sometimes that ends up being bad. Who knows in, in practice. Exactly. Um, Okay, so I, I maybe what we'll do is we'll just kind of walk through the paper. We'll kind of start with the intro and 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 see what we have to say about this. So the first thing, the first thing that I found was interesting about this right off the bat in the intro is uh, there's a lot of claims, and I want to know if they're true. <laughs> uh, so one of the claims, and maybe you have some insight into this, is that uh, they say you know a serverless architecture leads to systems comprised of many separate functions. Mm -hmm. In our experience, tens or hundreds of functions. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so don't get me wrong. I've seen quite a few apps in the past uh, with hundreds of functions, or at least more functions than can fit on my screen whenever I try to list them. Uh, and that always gives me a bit of a heart attack uh, because um, I think serverless applications can get a little difficult to manage and a little difficult to uh, maintain the good health of uh, once you get go past 50 functions, you know, if you want to get a, a threshold, an arbitrary threshold. Um, so in my mind, I don't think it's the best practice to do this. I think it's best to keep your function applications relatively small. Uh, but yes, I have seen people do this. Uh, and if I could just say something here, um, so, something I think it's interesting about serverless is that uh, at least when, when I was first hearing about it, uh, like my feeling was that people would use it for small pieces of glue code on the cloud. Uh, and I think in particular because the abstraction layer is so high and because the billing is so great, people are looking at serverless and saying, I want to do really complex things on this really nice environment. And they kind of like push it to the limit. Uh, so I do think people are, um, you know, hosting hundreds of functions in a single app. I'm not sure that the platform was originally designed to do that. 
Yeah, I mean, I remember like uh, when we were working on serverless, we were looking for examples in like AWS. When we were like, I I should just disclose, I also worked on serverless and, and durable entities and durable functions uh, at Microsoft across two two internships. So I, I also got exposed to some of this as well. Um, me and David's time didn't unfortunately overlap in 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 meat space, but it overlapped right. virtually. We worked on a couple papers together as well, but. Um, one of the things that I remember early on when we were trying to build example applications was looking at AWS documentation. And one of the things was like, you know, one of the big examples at the time, and this is probably 2017, 18, was mm -hmm. like uh, image resizing. So you upload to an S3 bucket and in parallel, you can like do all of your image resizing. And then, and then that resized image gets taken and put into some other bucket and used by some other part of the application. And so in that case, it really does meet that definition you talked about about glue code, which is kind of like I'm dumping some stuff here and then these functions are going to kind of do some sort of translation that doesn't involve state typically mm -hmm. or, or it involves maybe just assets that can be loaded and dumped immediately. But there's no shared state across executions and stuff. And so it kind of fits that definition. But it's interesting because it seems like with these larger applications, you're building like entire workflows, right? And we see kind of those things with, with step functions and with durable functions, especially, and, and stuff like that, where you start building more and more complex flows that probably rely on state and might need coordination and all of these other things, right? So you give somebody the tool and they'll use it for whatever they want, right? Like, yeah. uh, if you don't constrain it enough. I was just gonna say, I mean, I think, uh, this is a bit of a tangent, but I, I, I think uh, that, that in a way what we're seeing, and the, the, the authors very well identify, like these are difficult things that people are trying to do with serverless, that, that the framework or the paradigm of serverless, maybe it's not addressing well, uh, but now the, the cloud providers need to respond to that and like find a way to ease these pain points. And I think Nimbus is probably an example of one way how cloud providers could ease it. Um, but anyways. Right, yeah. right, yeah. No, that's, a, that's an interesting observation you make, kind of like you give them the power, you know, you design it for this one type of application, but mm -hmm. there aren't really any guardrails that prevent you from writing another type of application. And now all of a sudden, we have these applications that are doing all sorts of things we didn't expect, and the runtimes basically aren't ready for that yet, mm -hmm. I guess. Um, okay, so to, to kind of step forward, um, another point that I wanted to talk about that I thought was interesting in this in this introduction with you is um, this idea that they say development tools are in their infancy. It's hard to develop locally, and uh, you have to kind of deploy things to the cloud. And this is a this is a painful process, and it's challenging. And you know you have to do this cycle where you're redeploying and testing things. So I was so one thing I remember from being at Microsoft working on serverless yeah. was there's this local simulator, right? And so this local simulator is pretty sick. And so maybe you can talk a little bit about the local simulator and what it what it does and how it works. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I mean, I think in in general, like, is true. Like, if you're talking about uh, serverless in general, I don't think all cloud providers provide a local development experience. In part, in part because the framework was supposed to be, uh, or the paradigm was originally designed to be, hey, this is. For your glue code, uh, but yes, Azure Functions does provide a local development experience uh, that can emulate uh, your different storage uh, resources, your queues, your tables, your, your blob storage. Uh, it we we have tools that allow you to quickly scaffold um, applications by by a series of templates that uh, compose very nicely together. 
Uh, and, and, you know, if you're developing with uh, tools like Visual Studio, Visual Studio Code, it's really easy to uh, deploy your application or, or test it with cloud resources locally. Um, so at least in the case of Azure Functions, I do think uh, the developers have looked at this problem that serverless can be hard to test. And we have responded to that with a local development experience. I don't think that is uh, a staple of the paradigm um, across all providers. So I think it's one of the, the, the distinguishing features of Microsoft where we've both been. Yeah, so this is an interesting point that um, I, when I go through my comments on the paper, I'm going to bring up a bunch of times. And right. so I think kind of just to set the stage, I think there's a meta point kind of that you can extract from this paper. And if you've had any experience in working with serverless, that's when, um, when you're dealing with like an environment where a cloud environment where your development tools are also being built by that same company, uh, you do get kind of an advantage, right? So if you're doing AWS and you're writing Java and you're using IntelliJ, your experience is not as nice as, as using Visual Studio, like the full Visual Studio with Azure Functions, because you get this local simulator where you can simulate storage. You get this simulator where you can iterate on your functions and you can see how they trigger and you can test events to see if they, the right events are triggering the right functions. And so you get to do all of this locally because there is this sense that like, uh, we're going to build up our development tool to match the environment that our cloud provider uh, is is supporting or whatever. And so I think that's an important point. And I think there's, that's an important context to read this paper. It's certainly a context I read this paper in immediately um, because when I was reading it, um, as somebody who, who used uh, AWS Lambda a lot, yeah. wrote a paper about it and then worked on durable functions, uh, I kept thinking in my mind, like, well, a lot of what this paper is trying to solve is like turning a cloud environment back into a local development environment. I think that's some meta takeaway yes. from this paper. Yeah, for sure, right? Um, I, I should say, um, just just in the case of Azure, the, the local testing environment is, in fact, uh, separate from the IDE. Uh, so you, you can, in fact, you know, have your IntelliJ Java app and still leverage the, the local environment. Uh, but I think your broader point is true, that... Uh, that um, it, it can be difficult to find the right tooling to, to do your local, you know, what you would normally consider the standard local development right, experience. Right. Yeah. yeah, so I think that, that's an important point. Now, that's a great point that you make that I, I kind of was a little bit too generous in my previous description in that what we're really talking about, I think this leads perfectly into the next point I want to make about the paper. Uh, what we're really talking about is that Azure has provided a runtime and that runtime allows you to test your cloud stuff locally before yeah. shipping it, right? And like the point you highlighted is you could easily integrate this into IntelliJ. Maybe it's actually been done if there's a CLR mm -hmm. extension for IntelliJ, who knows, or JavaScript or whatever, um, or TypeScript or whatever. But um, the key point is that you have the runtime, right? And so yeah. in microservice land, we, we did a lot of qualitative work looking at the failures that people experience in microservice applications and we, we kind of broke it down into a bunch of areas where some are application bugs and some are infrastructure bugs. And what we found was that a lot of infrastructure bugs were because somebody had come up with some configuration and they couldn't test it locally because they don't have the AWS runtime. You can't test auto-scaling rules on your local machine. You can't test uh, integration between a, you know, a Lambda and like a whatever, like a, I'm trying to think of one of their data stores, Elasticache or RDS or whatever, Dynamo. Uh, 
And so an interesting point there is that this this ability to have this runtime locally, it doesn't this doesn't really solve just the serverless problem. This right. solves like a ability to simulate cloud things locally and potentially find bugs earlier. And mm-hmm. I think that they say this. I, I, the reason I found this so interesting was because I've been always thinking about it in the microservice context. But in the paper, they say, and to quote, you know, trying to successfully deploy code and have it interact correctly with the cloud environment. Often the application was deployed, a configuration error was revealed, fixed, and then another deployment performed. This process was completed until everything was configured correctly. Yeah. And so this sounds kind of like, you know, like I don't have access to the runtime. So I write a bunch of code and I don't know if it's going to work. So I ship it up to the cloud because that's where my runtime is. And I see if it works, if it doesn't work. And then if it doesn't work, I have to iterate locally and tweak the configs based on the errors I saw and, and things like this. And so, you know, outside of the serverless thing, I think this runtime that you mentioned, this ability to have this runtime locally to simulate stuff solves, a, solves so many more problems. But in this paper, they're thinking about it strictly in the, the serverless area, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it kind of reminds me, I don't know if you've ever had this problem where, I mean, you probably have where, um, you know, you have a CI associated to uh, some pull request and like the test is only failing in the CI and you have to wait yeah, like every day making tiny little edits to try to see like, is it passing now? And that, that, that kind of sounds like what they're describing. Uh, so yeah, yeah. And, and I think more generally, um, you know, part of the challenge I think in, in the serverless space is that in a way by, by taking control out of the user, we're also uh, taking away some of the, the standard ways in which they can self-help themselves uh, when they have like configuration errors, right? It's like they, they require that cloud provider, unless you have the runtime locally. Um, right, right. Or, or, I mean, I assume that like, you know, I, I have very little experience with this stuff, but I, I assume that things like Terraform or whatever probably mm-hmm. have some sort of linting or static analysis that tell you like, that eliminates some class of errors, right? So, like auto scaling, like you got to put nodes greater than zero, probably, or <laughs> some something like this, right? So, I assume that there's some level of, and even I wrote a blog about this about microservices and and infrastructure failures, and I said in that blog, presumably there's a class of bugs that can be detected via a simple static analysis, and presumably there's some that are interactions that involve like actual things we need to like run the thing for real, and then there's kind of a more complicated case which is where things have to fail and you have to have everything really in the environment to see the bad interactions that only happen when failure happens. But I assume like there is some class of things like they even highlight some of the examples here, like typos in large complex deployment configuration files to incorrect permissions. Like I'm assuming that some of these modern tools that developers are using for Pulumi, maybe Terraform, something like this, CloudFormation to some degree, I suppose, probably have some mechanism for doing some sort of sanity checks of things that are definitely bad, but presumably there are some interactions you can't tell that are, you know, some sort of dynamic thing where you don't know what the value will be until runtime and some set of values don't match a contract or, or something like that, I guess. Um, cool. So, um, yeah, so, so I guess the last kind of bit in the introduction of this paper is about file sizes. Uh, yeah. And they connect file sizes to um, cold start. Um, so I didn't get a lot of ch- time to do a lot of background work on this. I remember Microsoft had a bunch of projects on optimizing like cold start time. 
mm-hmm. in MSR. I remember that like at least three people in my area in MSR were really focused on reducing serverless execution time and writing papers about it. And I know that Amazon's done a bunch of work in Amazon science about this as well. Um, I, I guess just kind of like, did you have any thoughts when you read this about like file size and, and just kind of like the implications of it? Or did, did you read it in a certain way or how'd you feel about it or? Yeah, um, a few things. I mean, yes, I think uh, I think cold start and how well your serverless uh, runtime does with respect to cold start has sort of become this benchmark that I think all the cloud providers are competing with, like who has the lowest cold start for a given language. Um, I'm not I'm not an expert on this. I don't work in this directly, um, but I was certainly surprised. Um, to to hear or to 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 notice that they they were placing such a heavy emphasis on the payload size uh, because th- there's multiple factors. Like even if you have a small payload size, uh, serverless applications have cold start uh, challenges for very very many reasons, and and, oh, yeah. and the payload size is not the only determinant. Maybe it's the one determinant that that users can control. Um, but I was wondering, you know, that if users are hitting uh, the payload size limitation of their serverless function, uh, whether or not, uh, number one, they were following best practices, number two, whether or not serverless was the right environment for them. Um, so my... My yeah, so I'm I'm with you. I'm I'm highly skeptical of this because uh, yeah. we'll get to it. Well, maybe we'll wait and talk about this a little bit more because their solution doesn't seem to match with what I think the problem actually is. Um, but 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 perhaps it does. Um, so we'll maybe we'll wait till we get to that and we'll kind of move into the the meat of the paper now. The mm-hmm. the actual contribution. Yeah, I just I just want to say it's definitely a contributor, and and I do think it's the one thing that users can control well. Uh, well, I agree. It's the a, only thing they can control, yeah. right? <laughs> I from, a, from a cloud vendor perspective, uh, but again, speaking for myself, uh, I am not certain that uh, we're going to solve the problem of cold start just by optimizing this. I agree completely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think and there's, there's some languages where you things. cannot do this, right? Like, I think this is, I think, so the framing I read from this problem was externally at the interface between you, developer and cloud provider. There are a number of things I can control. And if I want to increase execution time, the thing I can control is I can make the software smaller. That's the way I read it, right? So this is kind of like a... And I do think that this ties into their whole thing because they do have this goal of being uh, cloud agnostic. I just want to highlight one thing that we kind of glossed over at the beginning. This paper was published in 2020, which presumably means that uh, they said that this work was done in 2019. And so Mm -hmm. this is somewhat dated. um, So... You know, obviously, it's not going to reflect everything that's happened in, in the two years since then. Obviously, it was written before the prototype was built in late 19. It was published in 2020. So a lot of times past things might have changed. Um, so. OK, um, so to get into the meat of the paper, um, the key behind Nimbus is um, you want to work with an application as a whole. Um, mm-hmm. You want to basically avoid the use of having to deal with configuration files. They're going to achieve this through annotations. We'll talk about that. They want the code to be cloud agnostic. We can talk about that quite a bit, uh, <laughs> yeah. which is an interesting goal, and we'll see if it's actually achievable. 
And um, finally, uh, they want to optimize the size, which we, we just kind of briefly talked about. We'll talk about it in a little bit more in depth. The system's built in Kotlin. It's a real system. It's on GitHub. It's a video. Um, it's, it was written in Kotlin. It targets uh, Maven, JVM, use in the JVM. It's written in Kotlin, but it can work with any JVM-based language. So the first thing I want to kind of talk about is, um, is this use of annotations. Yes. So they use annotations to describe like the triggering actions for functions, how the function, the resources that the functions need. And the whole goal is to basically convert configuration files and YAML or whatever cloud formation they, they highlight specifically um, mm -hmm. into a, a way that it can be in the code itself. Yep. And so that basically as part of some compilation or code gen step, they can synthesize the necessary stuff so the developers don't have to write it. And this kind of achieves two goals. It reduces this configuration file overhead, and it also it also provides the it also enables the analysis for that's required for the, the size reduction and also provides the cloud agnostic functionality they're working on. So this this annotation is key for driving a lot of what they're gonna do. Now, the thing I found which interesting immediately going back to our original points, so they highlight a bunch of things about like, you know, um, the problems with cloud formation specifically, like if, if there's an error, it only reports the first. And so you have to go through this really slow cycle. So you should check everything ahead of time. That's one thing they highlight. They talk mm -hmm. about how it aborts and uh, the deployment takes a long time. The size of the file or the artifact takes a long time to upload. And then you have to wait for the redeployment and all of this stuff. And um, all of this is supposed to reduce it. But one thing I just want to highlight, which gets back to our original point is, uh, and I quote, additionally, the use of annotations allows for type checking, meaning that a large class of errors can be detected before deployment. And so this gets back to that point. It's kind of like, what we're doing is we're taking like a cloud thing where we don't have the runtime, we don't have anything, and we don't have any IDE support, except maybe in some rare cases of like Azure and, and Visual Studio. And what we're really trying to do is just convert the cloud back into local programming, right? Mm -hmm. And this is like this thing, it's like, you know, type, we can rule out so many errors with type checking. PL people are like, you know, what are you doing, <laughs> right? Like, you should have been thinking about this. You should have been compiling to this thing to begin with, I guess. So I, I guess, what, what do you think? Like, tell me your thoughts. Yeah. I mean, in general, uh, I, I really like the annotation uh, style solution. I, hit, I think it hits the nail right in the head as to, uh, you know, I, the, if, if we're thinking about like the spirit of, of, of what serverless tries to be, um, we're trying to get people to um, think strictly about their business logic. And I think that, uh, when in addition to that, you ask them to think about the underlying framework uh, through configuration values that is separate from their business logic, I think that's where errors can happen. So I like the fact that the annotations are placed right next to the logic, and you can sort of like see that connection and think of it as part of your code. Um, and, and Azure does this, right? Doesn't Azure actually use annotations for saying the triggering yeah. events? Uh, yeah, in, in, in C Sharp, that's exactly uh, yeah, how it works. Yeah. Um, uh, at the moment, uh, certain languages uh, do require a separate configuration file. Well, there's different kinds of configuration, right? There's the configuration with respect to uh, 
you know, what are the, the data sources that your function connects to? And then there's configuration with respect to, uh, I don't know, the maximum number of nodes that will be allocated to my app uh, or my storage uh, information. And, and, and that tends to be separate for, for other reasons. But the stuff that affects the execution of the functions themselves and the data sources, I, I do think that makes sense to be paired together. Um, That's exactly what this is doing. Actually, the yeah. data store is the next section we'll get into. And mm -hmm. remind me, in C Sharp, is this done with like ODBC? It's, it's done with some ODBC type thing, right? Or something? Um, I can't speak to that. Uh, I can just tell you to see like the annotation system uh, to specify. Okay, you know, yeah. I have a data associated yeah, with yeah, it. Yeah. Uh, what, what I can say though, I, like I wasn't exactly sure what you meant. Uh, you were trying to say something about the type checking. Uh, that being something that, that people should have thought of from the start. I, I, what did you mean by that? I feel like if you, yeah, so maybe, maybe I was kind of just, uh, maybe I was just kind of conjecturing a bit, but I feel mm -hmm. like from the PL side of things, yeah. uh, the way that this program would have been approached, like if it, this is public, and I think some of this work actually does exist. I'll, I'll look for it for the show notes later, but I think this work oh does exist where you come up with like a very specialized DSL rather than trying to like retrofit an existing thing and then you compile down to something that's like guaranteed to be right. Like that feels like that yeah. feels like the very PL centric approach to solving this problem is that, well, your serverless backend is is just, you know, it's it's a compilation target, right? You go to like some mm -hmm. server, you go to an intermediary representation. So I know that um, at, I think at, at um, where was this? I think at, Amherst, there was this paper from uh, Arjun mm -hmm. uh, that where they where they came up with some serverless IR. I remember as part of uh, our project on Reactive Machine, which predated Durable Entities. In Reactive Machine, we came up with an IR too. We basically said that like this is an IR, and then mm -hmm. from this IR, you just like synthesize the code that goes out to uh, goes out to Lambda. And maybe the Lambda conditions are a little bit different. You synthesize the version that goes out to Azure Functions, mm -hmm. and then you synthesize the variant that we actually made a variant that compiled to microservices. So you wrote in like a serverless DSL, but then we could just, let's okay. say you weren't ready to run on functions yet or something. You could just go to like a, you know, you could go to a target that was basically like microservices that ran like Node.js with TypeScript or something. So I feel like from the PL approach, it's very much like you would come up with some safe subset that describes kind of the core principles of serverless and that Amherst work I mentioned talks about serverless as like a Lambda calculus, but it doesn't think about like, I don't think it thinks about deployment triggers and queues and events and data sources. I think it's just the core calculus of computation, but you know, it's interesting to think about how from PL point of view, you do this where, where in this approach, it's really much kind of working backwards from Lambda, right? This is kind of like looking at Lambda and saying kind of what are, what are the core things? There's data sources and there's like triggers. Right. And then kind of building an annotation, annotation system based on that that then compiles, that, that basically code gens out your cloud formation to mm -hmm. guarantee that you don't have type mismatches or, or whatever, right? Right, yeah. I mean, I think, like you said, the main benefit is Frankly, that, that you'll get the error before you deploy. And, and, and that, that, I think, is key. Um, yeah. So um, in terms of the document store, um, I was a little skeptical of this stuff. So I mean, well, how did you feel about it? So, so just to kind of set the stage, the next thing we're going to talk about is kind of the annotations that describe, rather than triggers, but describe um, that describe actual data stores. And the key here is that 
um, they want to emphasize that you you talk about your document stores abstractly, right? So they have an example mm. here in listing one where they say, you know, you have a used document store annotation that um, and that used document store annotation takes a class that describes like the data that will be like serialized and stored into that that document store. And this is kind of the part where they start tying the annotations into this agnostic cloud bit. And so I was really skeptical about this section just because I felt like, is there enough uniformity across data stores in the three cloud providers that you can do this? Yeah, and, uh, yeah, yeah I, I agree. I mean, I think, let's take a step back because I think uh, yeah. in a way, perhaps we're being too skeptical. I think let's start at least by saying, at least from my perspective, that ideally things would be this way. <laughs> Like ideally, ideally, things would be this way. It would yeah. be great to have uh, these fully abstracted away. You don't have to think about what engine is actually giving you storage. You just have to think like this is the broad behaviors that I need: queues, signals, blah blah blah, at some some document store, and uh, and the cloud provider specializes that for me. Uh, now today, and, and maybe you can do that if you're targeting a particular cloud provider. And you're saying, like, I am targeting AWS, and I, I'm going to use this IR to determine, uh, well, if you have a document store, then I'm going to take the, the opinionated approach of saying you're going to use this database and with this configuration, and maybe dynamically adjusts based on, on traffic. Uh, I am not sure, like, like, like you were hinting at, that that's going to work uh, in addition with Azure, in addition with uh, Google Cloud. Um, like I can think of all these settings, which I'm like, how are you going to set all these <laughs> configuration values that you even need to get started? Or even allocate the resources in the cloud. Like, is 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 are, are these frameworks going to take the burden of having very complex specialized logic for all these cloud providers? Um, yeah, go ahead. So I feel it's I feel this is a difficult thing. Um, mm -hmm. In practice, I, I'll comment on a few things. So in terms of like allocation of the resources, um, just because it's the last thing you said and it's stuck in my mind, this paper actually says that it will. It will address that problem of allocation, um, which I was actually highly skeptical. I made a note to say that sometimes it's not allocation. Uh, sometimes the problem is schema migration. So uh, let's say that you're deploying a function that doesn't need a new database, but actually needs a new field added to a database. Um, that's a lot harder problem than just saying, I need a new table. Um, and so uh, I feel like the problem isn't just allocation. I feel like there's data transformation. And in that case, you really want to make sure that you have no bugs before you go out because you need to potentially perform destructive or non-destructive transformations on data. So I, I feel like they try to address the allocation problem. I don't think it's just an allocation problem. Um, but outside of that, just generally speaking of like mapping things, you know, I think there's a little bit to be said that the example in the paper uses a document store because document stores mostly have the same API. It's a schemaless mm -hmm. data store, so you don't worry about schemas. In the, in, you, know, you don't worry about them in quotes because you really do have to worry about them if you're changing or doing destructive actions. But, you know, generally speaking, you have like a put get API, right? But um, these things are a lot different, right? So like, you know... Um, I would say like one thing to think about, right? So you could have SQL databases that have different default consistency levels, serializability versus something mm -hmm. else, snapshot isolation. You could have key value stores that are eventually consistent or causally consistent. They could be strongly consistent, right? 
These things affect application semantics. Um, you could have queues that, for instance, Kafka has very peculiar semantics on exactly once processing, um, which is used a lot with serverless. Um, right. And that may impact things if you move to a queue that, you know, if you move to RabbitMQ, you say, I want RabbitMQ or something instead. Um, those things are going to look a lot different, right? So I think, you know, I, I was being skeptical, but I think, you know, for practically speaking, I think that maintaining some sort of translation level layer mm -hmm. for like middleware effectively is what it is for like every possible different like anomaly in processing or APIs, something. I think it's impractical because it's this many to many kind of mapping problem where everything looks different. And as products evolve, you have to be aware of them to update those things or your program behavior changes. You have right. to be aware of like the versions, which the versions might not even be completely exposed if you're using like ElastiCache. What version of Redis's API am I using for this app versus that app? So mm -hmm. I think that this problem in practice is really, really hard. Um, but I imagine that like, you know, for a subset of things, it probably would work fine, right? So um, yeah. And I, I this makes me scared. Let me just finish one thing. This makes me skeptical of the whole like, when you make the claim of cloud agnostic, I'm skeptical of that claim, but like, I don't even have to be skeptical of that claim because I don't even get that far, right? Like I get like, this is really hard with just versions of software, right? Like it's not, I'm not even talking about going to different cloud. Like I'm saying like, imagine we just used EC2 and like Azure's VMs, whatever, their Linux VMs or whatever, like just in the case where I'm deploying the software and I have to deal with different versions of the underlying things that I'm using, the resources I'm using, that's really hard. Yes. Um, and then you're saying, I'm going to use the hosted versions of these things where the things might not be transparent. I have to map semantics. And I think there you get into a situation where it gets really hard. And if you go back to the point that you made at the very beginning, which is this point of using serverless, but not, not the way you expected it to, and now cloud providers need to optimize for this, this makes it even more difficult, right? If we're saying that we're going to have some meta layer that can compile to anything, any architecture, any version, whatever, you mm -hmm. know, and do this. I think, I think the problem becomes almost insurmountable. Um, but, you know, I mean, I think it's an idealistic goal. I just wonder how practical it is. Like, do people really take a bunch of lambdas and they say, I'm moving to Azure and I don't want to rewrite anything? Do they? I mean, would they? If you, if you, even, if you were even able to overcome the technical challenges, would they? Right. I mean, to be, to be perfectly clear, I mean, I think, uh, I think part of the claim that is being made is that the approach of the annotations is technically not tied to a particular vendor, right? So you can, you could, just like you could have written this code for AWS, you could read it for, you could have written it for Azure or Google. So in that sense, it, it is certainly cloud agnostic. Uh, but yes, I mean, I, I agree with the points you said. I do wonder though, like, I think it's interesting to ask um, if, you know, expert distributed systems folks, uh, would potentially have a hard time maintaining this framework, do users have an easy time making this choice by themselves either way, right? Like if, even if you don't have a framework like Nimbus to, you know, in theory, do this translation for you, like what, user, what, what help do users get when trying to choose your database store and, and, and configuring all these values and thinking about your consistency levels uh, 
I think that is difficult. And I think that in a way is one of the things that I'm not sure serverless addresses by itself. Um, in a way, like the dream, and I think, you know, to be frank, I think there is something about the idealistic version of this because serverless is trying to go there. Just think about your business logic and we'll figure it out. And in that way, I'm like, yeah, maybe it would be a good thing. Maybe, I don't know, maybe it's a hot take. Maybe it would be a good thing to constrain the choices users have and to say, you just think of the data store and we'll figure it out for you. Uh, and yeah. maybe, maybe that could lead to fewer errors. Maybe that could lead to fewer incidents. Um, maybe it leads to worse performance. I don't know. Uh, but if I think about what I think serverless tries to be, I do wonder if fewer choices and uh, smart, you know, uh, optimizations of, of what the choices look like for your app might be where we should move towards. And also, this is research, so maybe it's okay to target. Yeah, yeah, like. yeah. I mean, no, no, it's fine. I think you made. I think you made a couple of really good points there. I actually went back. I have the paper here, and I just looked at it. And so. Maybe the problem I have with this paper is it doesn't frame the motivation for cloud agnostic stuff, right? Or maybe it does. And actually, I think it might. And I think it just doesn't do a good job of convincing me, maybe. But the question is, like, if, if portability is not a concern, then I suppose a lot of the things I said are, are not as important criticisms, right? I, I guess maybe if the whole point is to avoid the fact that your application code contains stuff specific to a cloud provider, if that is the key, and there's no kind of ever ever assumption or or thought that portability it's just merely code gen to reduce errors in typing mm -hmm. um then maybe this is fine and maybe it's a really good thing right um and so maybe i get confused because when i hear something be cloud agnostic i'm trying to figure out like why right is it is it portability is it is it trying to synthesize code so i don't manually write cloud formations and screw them up Mm -hmm. Or is it trying to, you know, solve some other problem? And and so I, I'll just highlight a few things from the paper, w which make me believe that it could be better motivated or be or made more clear. So one thing I, I think I'll say in this kind of section on on cloud agnost uh, agnostic application code is, you know, at, at the time of deployment, uh, you'll use an annotation processor, basically your compiler. Mm -hmm. to um, use a generator that will target a particular platform. So this is a thing a lot of people have thought about, we thought about, um, a bunch of other people thought about. Um, so this would give you the synthesis where they say, like, you could go to Azure or AWS or IBM Cloud Functions or whatever. But then they say, like, you know, another benefit is that you can transparently swap out cloud-based data stores for local alternatives. Um, and that, I get that they're doing it for the local environment, but... I feel like as a reader, you could misinterpret that as thinking it's as easy as swapping these things out and targeting another platform and my application behavior is the same. So I think it's a very thin line. If you want to say in AWS, I'm going to use RDS and locally I'm going to use Postgres. And I guarantee that my RDS in AWS, I think you can have MySQL or Postgres or something, I don't remember. But if you want to say like, I'm doing this because my goal is locally, I want to run my code with Postgres to test it. Yeah. That's fine, as long as the semantics between your AWS RDS thing match your semantics on your, whatever you swap it out locally for. But if, you, if you're under the assumption that you could say, well, I'll just change the compilation target and I'll target Azure, 
and I'll end up using whatever the Azure equivalent of Postgres is. Then, like, assuming that the application semantics will be this, I even think that local swap is is really. It makes me nervous. I'll talk about that sure. in a second, but um, I, I feel like you could misinterpret it. It's a very thin. It's it's a very fine line that you have to walk. I think with this, mm-hmm. um, in terms of the Azure thing, getting back to our point about the Visual Studio, the simulator gives you data source, right? If I remember correctly, and that's awesome. Yeah. And even in AWS, if you're using Dynamo, uh, I've only discovered this recently. You can get a Dynamo like container that mimics Dynamo Dynamo's cloud behavior locally, so you can develop against Dynamo because the API doesn't match an existing API. Or something like that. But for things where the wire format's the same and the semantics are mostly the same, then you would just replace out your RDS or whatever. I don't remember if RDS maps to Postgres. I think it does, but whatever. But the, the equivalent, you would get the local equivalent that had the same API or wire format or whatever. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I think it's a, it's a it's dangerous a, thing in my mind. Right. And just, just because you mentioned containers, uh, I mean... It kind of sounds like there's all these problems, right, in in, in trying to uh, switch compilation targets, as you as you talked about it. And uh, it's no surprise to me that there's this whole community on on containers that is trying to say, okay, well, what if I ship the entire runtime in my container so I can have the same development environment here in the cloud in in Azure, or whatever? Um, so you know, if we're talking about that idealistic vision. Uh, I think there is a path with uh, containers and container technology. Perhaps, perhaps this is a big tangent, uh, but I'm not certain that um, we can get there. Like you said, just by switching the compilation target to Azure or to local or whatever. Um, yeah, um, I mean, it'll behave the same way. You need technology that enables this, like containers, right? Or you have a runtime like Azure. Oh, you have a right. Well, yeah, yes, of course. I mean, here this is the fun, this is the fundamental problem we're getting back to, right? This is why it's right. so interesting. The fundamental problem we're getting back to is not having the runtime, right? So, like, if you have the runtime, then you use this Azure simulator, mm-hmm. and you can, and which doesn't have everything. It has it has a bunch of stuff. It doesn't have everything, and you simulate as much as you want locally. And sometimes you get IDE integration if if you're using the right IDE. But because for AWS, we don't have this, we use containers, right? Like the containers are not like, if we were designing a solution from the ground up, the container solution wouldn't be right, right? It, it's, the, it's the solution that we're coming to because it's like where the abstraction boundaries are right. So mm-hmm. we say like, in our mind, we say like, okay, in AWS, like AWS provides an abstraction layer that's Kubernetes, which provides an abstraction layer that's containers. And it turns out that the right interposition layer is containers because I can have my containers run in my local Kubernetes or I can have my containers run in my cloud Kubernetes. And then the area of risk, let's say, risk being the the, the right. amount of space distance between what your cloud instance will do and what your local instance will do. Well, that's the cloud formations. That's the auto scaling rules. That's the IAM. It's all of this stuff, right? It's all of the stuff that you can't simulate locally because you picked that abstraction boundary that's at the containers, right? Mm. So you would say like, well, for instance, if I'm doing serverless in Azure, I can use the simulator and the simulator will let me work out all the, well, it actually doesn't. This is a great counterexample. This is a great 
This actually, I was using it as a counterexample. It's not a counterexample. Because in Azure, you can still use the simulator, but the permissions are, com- well, when I used it, the permissions are completely open. So, like, even in your simulator in 2018 or whatever it was when I worked on it, maybe 19, the permissions were completely open by default for every function when you access them locally. So then you could still do that and deploy to the cloud and then run into problems because you didn't set up your rules correctly. Um, Maybe that's changed, but that's I remember running into this exact issue where we had everything working and then we went to the cloud and it was like everything was permissions errors everywhere. We had to go like manually set all the permissions everywhere to get everything working right. So there is this distance like the simulator still doesn't solve everything in some cases because you don't have everything and you know, permissions and maybe auto scaling and stuff like that are, are things that if you do it in configuration files, you do it in the UI or whatever, are not going to be respected. Right. So, right. You look like you want to say something. Yeah, I do. Well, I just, <laughs> you look like you're thinking <laughs> very hard about my simulator comment. I just wanted to be nitpicky just because I can. Uh, of course. I mean, you know, the, the, the nitpick is that, at least in the Azure Functions case, um, you know, my understanding is. You know, the the runtime that you get is not simulated. It is, in fact, the runtime. So it is it just yeah, open. Yeah, sorry, I mean, it is, it is the storage that is emulated locally. That's the, right. Yeah, okay. So yeah. I was saying the simulator, that's really bad. Um, right. But I got what you mean. Yeah, it's, it's, like a, it's like the Azure emulator. Or it's whatever, the Azure right? storage emulator. Yes. That's it. And, yeah. uh, and, and I think there are certain resources, uh, again, this is somewhat at some expertise, uh, but there's things like Event Hubs, it's a very, very popular Azure service that I don't think has a local emulation experience. And I think that that is like one of the areas where, uh, well, this thing can happen. Where I think it does. Have... I think that's the thing. We built everything on Event Hubs. I think there was there was some weird stuff though when we did it. I think it was that like. Remember how Event Hubs had like a Kafka API and a non-Kafka API, like that legacy API or whatever? The, the, it had like its own API. And then okay. they added like a Kafka wire compliant API that you could like use the Confluent things. I think at the time we were having different behavior with those where like the simulator, we could use like the Azure API or something, uh, emulator. And then in the other, like the other API, we needed to actually do it on Azure for real because the emulator didn't have it. But Let's let's say this is all in theory, but yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I you know uh, I'm I'm not sure one way or another, but yeah, I, I mean I'm recalling I'm also recalling like 2018, so all of this stuff obviously has changed a million times by now. But um, anyways, yeah, yeah, in theory, um, okay. Um, so I mean, you know, I I guess just kind of moving on to the local testing. I mean, we've been talking about this a lot. I feel like the whole story of this paper really is the local testing, the local runtime, the local emulator. I feel like that's the real story of this paper. Trying to close the gap. Or one of the more more exciting parts, yeah. And so even when you get to this local testing bit, they kind of say like, you know, with existing tools and frameworks, it's possible to run a function locally, but not possible to create a mirror of the complete environment, including data stores, queues, static websites. Nimbus supports all of these locally. So I, I feel like I feel like we just spent like 15 minutes talking about why we think that's not true. <laughs> um, so I just wanted to highlight that that's kind of called out explicitly. I think I think it really is difficult to kind of make this claim. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that given just all of the development that's happened on AWS in three years, it's really difficult, I think, to make this claim that you're going to be able to do it all locally. And I feel like that's kind of the weak points of the paper is that 
it doesn't discuss the differences, the, the challenges in, in closing this gap. It doesn't discuss the challenges in building something like this to actually make that possible. And perhaps the reason it's possible is because they use like a really restricted subset of AWS where they only allow mm-hmm. some subset of what's possible, right? Um, I feel like that's not called out clearly. And I think it would be a stronger paper to discuss that, to say we didn't do this thing because it turns out it's like really hard and yeah, they say, for instance, like AWS SAM or whatever, but um, for the serverless application model, but you, you imagine that there's probably implementation details of that model that are not on the documentation, right? right. Um, I, I assume that IAM's got some complicated stuff under the hood. I know S3's got a bunch of complicated stuff under the hood, um, basically because at Basha we built an S3 compliant thing. Um, and so... I feel like a lot of this is saying like, well, based on what I kind of observe. So I feel like to make this a stronger paper, what they really need to do is they need to say like, based on what we were able to observe externally about how these things worked, we were able to mimic some of it and create a local environment Mm -hmm. because the real challenge is that you don't have the local environment. And it turns out that all of your bugs come from not having the local environment. And those bugs take a long time to fix because it takes a long time to deploy and a long time to iterate. And all of this stuff. So every solution is trying to reduce the iteration time, mm-hmm. eliminate it in some cases. And it's all done by mimicking the behavior of Amazon in some cases and abstracting things away so that where so you, you kind of limit your damage space, right? You say, like, I'm not gonna let you write the configs because I know if you do it manually, you might screw it up. So I'm gonna use these annotations. I'm gonna reduce the file size to make the iteration quicker because you might accidentally ship a bug. Mm-hmm. And when you do, you want to make it that you can resolve the bug as fast as possible. And then I'm going to combine these things to give you the best local experience of developing a cloud system uh, mm-hmm. in your local editor by doing this. So I feel like that's kind of the story that the paper tries to solve. And I feel like I think it's incredible the amount of work that they did to make this work. But I Absolutely. feel like um, I feel like the paper, like under a strong criticism of the paper, it leaves a lot of interesting questions that the authors clearly could have ha- used the additional space to like ad- address these challenges. Because not only because I'm being skeptical, I mean, whatever, we have a podcast and being a skeptical reader, that's the point, right? But more interestingly is that talking about those challenges could set up future researchers who say like, you know, some student looking for a project, that thing looks interesting. How do we solve that bit of it, right? And so I feel like it's, they should have been discussed a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, again, I, I agree. I think it's good to emphasize pulling off a local development environment for AWS, even if a restrict, restricted subset of it, I think it's badass. I think it's great. Sure. I mean, we're not, we're not, I think, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I think when I was reading this section in particular, I think there's a, there's a line somewhere that says like, oh, we didn't do this for Azure or, or a different cloud provider, uh, but, but, but it can be done, which is true. Uh, but a part of me wondered, like, it would have been great to see a section that said, okay, this is how it looks with Azure, and this is like how the programming model gets messier, and this is the best we can do today. And sort of like saying like, you know, we, we've put hours of thoughts in, into like how to abstract as much of this real world messiness, and this is the state of the art on like cleanliness. And if it's messy, then maybe let, that's a signal for like all the all the engineers working on this saying like, okay, wow, this is <laughs> this is a problem. Yeah, uh, I really wanted to see that. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure if 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 
don't know, the, maybe the, the, the submission size had to be small or something. Uh, there were a lot of sections where I was like, this is awesome. Can you show me more? Can you, can you show me how this generalizes? Um, I was very curious about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with everything you said. I think those are really excellent points. I mean, we're not trying to diminish the engineering effort. We're trying to look at it from the research perspective and say, there's a lot of interesting unanswered questions, a lot of interesting technical challenges that can't be solved by mere coding that have to be solved by applying some sort of reduction in what's supported or you know, a reduction of semantics or something. And those are the interesting things to discuss, right? That's kind of what 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 we would hope to see as you continue scrolling through the paper and that's kind of not what's there mm -hmm. um okay so i guess kind of just like get to the last the last part of the technical bits is the optimizing jar size yeah that was cool what do you what did you think what did you think of it i thought it was cool i mean i i i, I th you know it, it sounds like they have some kind of uh jar i don't know if it's a static analyzer of sort that is able to just prune dependencies and I mean, I was looking at the table here on uh, the the size of the resulting jar, and I was like, yeah, it's not changing despite there being more dependencies. This is cool. Uh, I, I liked it, uh, at least as a, as a tool. Uh, I wondered, um, again, I mean, we've, we've made this point that uh, I'm not sure how much impact this has on cold start. Like, I am frankly not sure. Uh, yeah, you remain uh, unconvinced that it actually impacts cold start time. That would have been good to see. Yeah, I guess the numbers on like how does this change the cold start numbers. Uh, so that was one thing. But I mean, I believe it helps. Like I, I'm sure it helps to a degree. Um, there was something else I wanted to say. Uh, yeah, I was wondering like something like this. Like I'm not sure. Like would it be possible for either US or any cloud provider? to kind of like have this as part of their deployment step and sort of like, oh, you gave me a jar. Okay, I'm going to simplify it to reduce calls. Like, I wonder if cloud providers are already doing this. I, I don't know. Yeah, uh, that's a good, that's a good question. Something that shouldn't be, like from a, from a user perspective, I don't think users should have to worry about this. Uh, but, but, but it's true that uh, it's good to have, you know, smaller code payloads, uh, of course. Um, yeah, so I mean, gener generally, like, having a smaller size is better uh, because the JVM is going to have to load all those classes. Mm -hmm. So having a smaller size is better. Um, I don't I don't disagree with that. Um, I I remain very unconvinced that it impacts the cold start time significantly. I could be wrong. Um, uh, they don't will say that they evaluate the size of the resulting jars. They, they can't evaluate the cold start time, obviously, because they're working at the interface. So again, I think this gets back to our original point that when you're working at the boundary where you have opacity, basically mm -hmm. you cannot see into the cloud provider, the only thing you can control to speed up cold start time is the size. And, and that's directly correlated with assuming that the JVM is going to start and the JVM initialization is going to have to load a bunch of classes that it's going to have to probably do reflection on or whatever. And then that's going to impact the time. So um, yeah. I believe that this is the one thing that they could control from the outside. And I feel like they should have said that explicitly. Um, we'll link in the show notes a little bit more about reducing cold start time. There's been a lot of recent, I, I remember okay. seeing a bunch of it, but um, I don't have it readily available. So um, we'll link some papers on reducing cold start time if you're interested on what it looks like from the cloud provider side. I know there's been an Amazon paper on this and there's been 
I think at least one or two Microsoft papers on this, so uh, we'll link those. Um, I will say, again, this gets back to the point of the theory of the, the, the theoretical research bits, right? Where, where I'm kind of being a little snarky is, is they analyze the code to determine which classes are needed. And I think that that analysis problem is very hard, um, especially if you're using like lambdas that can be shipped around or there's any sort of dynamic code generation that happens, that analysis could become undecidable, I guess. Um, and so it's interesting to see, do they over approximate? Like, so this is the part where from the software engineering point of view and software, you know, for the people not familiar with software engineering, this is an interesting thing in that, you know, PO people and analysis people and, and software engineering people will look at program analysis but typically the program analyses that have to run on real programs have to like, they have to cut corners, right? They have to like reduce soundness for some aspect or reduce completeness for some aspect or whatever to basically change the precision of the analysis to either over approximate or under approximate to ensure that the analysis like completes and produces some interesting results where you can mitigate false positives and false negatives, right? And so the trick here is that you're saying for an arbitrary Java program, you can just like pick the subset of things that are being used and pull them out. Like I don't, I, I'm not convinced, right? So they say they do this with Spring, but you're saying there's like nothing you can write in Spring where an analysis might produce a false positive or false negative. It's so this is where I would like to see some practical trade-offs where they have a discussion section that says. Well, when we see these kind of things, we just assume it's used. Or when we see these kind of things, we assume it's not used, right? Because I don't believe that the complete analysis can work where all of these programs would always work. And it would be interesting to kind of see some evaluation, like of programming patterns where they just kind of say, you know, like this, we just have to include it because we don't know. Mm -hmm. And that's okay because it's only like a K, right? So those practical trade-offs I would like to see, especially in a paper where they're promoting a system that real people should use from the academic side. Um, and so just a, one other thing to highlight here about this work is that all of this is motivated by like a real program they were trying to write. So this isn't coming purely from the academic side, which is why I think these are important questions. Um, because I think other researchers would want to know, you know, how'd you get around this problem or how, how did you deal with that or, or, the, or whatnot? Um, mm -hmm. Cool. Um, so um, they wrote an application with it. There's a video. You can go check it out. I, I didn't actually watch the video. I didn't have time to. I spent most of my time on the paper. The code's available on GitHub. Um, and uh, they wrote a little chat application. It's got some REST APIs and talks to a data store and allows kind of a multi-user chat application. And then um, they, they talk about kind of the community response. So this paper doesn't have an evaluation, which basically I think that like every point that I raised and many, many of the points that David raised, I feel I was kind of the bad cop in this situation. You were the good cop. But uh, I feel like um, th there's no evaluation section outside of the evaluation of the artifact sizes. Um, but they do have like a real system that runs. Mm -hmm. And they, they talk a little bit about how the system was, you know, they released it in 2019 and they talk about how many stars it got on GitHub and then how they wrote an article on, on InfoQ and they got like a testimonial from the author. Um, so what, how did you feel about this? Well, you know what? I, I, I was just speaking at this section again and, and I realized that there was uh, an important aspect of this system that I don't think we touched on directly uh, that the, uh, this user testimonial uh, points out, which is that uh, testing your serverless apps is difficult. Uh, and I think 
you know, we've talked about how having a local uh, a local development experience makes it easier to test, or at the very least, makes it easier to smoke test to make sure your application starts up without uh, you know catching in a blaze of fire. Um, but I, I think um, something that was entirely clear to me in this paper is that they mentioned that this makes testing easier. And I was wondering if they meant like, does this make unit testing easier? Does this make like testing your actual individual functions? Uh, now that you have like local emulation of your storage, can you say like, well, here's a synthetic document that I want you to fit into the function and I want to make an assertion over it. Does it help with that? Does it not? Because uh, at least when I was reading the introduction and I saw a mention of testing, I was like, this is great because testing is difficult in serverless because you have these ephemeral functions uh, that are connected by these invisible strings. Um, so I wasn't sure about that, but this testimonial called that out explicitly. It said uh, that they struggled with testing or their lack thereof in serverless. Uh, so that's a bit of an open question for me. Does yeah, so I want to, I want to, I want to comment on one thing here. Uh, just so I read this testimonial. So just for the people who are listening, this testimonial is like uh, it's it's half, it's almost half a page. It's almost, I mean, one column. This is a two-column paper, obviously. It's almost half a column. Um, I read this testimonial like two or three times. Um, I feel there's something that bothers me about the testimonial, and that is that if you read the testimonial carefully, it's a testimonial of not somebody who's used it, but it's a testimonial of somebody who looked at it and is commenting on the problems they have and how they imagine that it will solve them. So I feel like that is not made very clear. And I feel like from a kind of qualitative research mechanism, uh, a qualitative research approach, I feel like it's not presented clearly enough to the reader that this is the opinions of somebody who looked at it and imagined how it would improve problems they actually had. Um, because I feel like if you read it, if you read it quickly, I feel it might give off the impression that the person actually wrote a program using Nimbus. So I'm just I'm just curious if this is just me or did, did you get that feeling did, like when you read the testimonial did you think it was somebody who'd used it? Um, so I'm sorry I was just reminded of these good cop bad cop comment you made. I I, am, <laughs> I was just joking I, about that. No, anyway. no, no. that I, I, I was just using it as an analogy to merely say that I was being I, overly critical I, and you were being I quite generous. You. I hear you. I hear you. Um, to be frank, I mean, I, I did get a similar impression that this was a comment uh, mostly praising the fact that uh, people were working on this area, that, that this was an unaddressed challenge in serverless and that they were glad to see, to see this, that, that they liked the programming model uh, and that they see potential in it. Uh, but yes, I agree. I, I don't think it's made clear enough uh, that this testimonial is of someone who has used the framework. Uh, and, and yeah, maybe, maybe that should be called out. Um, absolutely. Um, yeah, they do say a lot of interesting things, though. I mean, they, they highlight, I just want to highlight a couple, I'm just going to say a couple quotes here that I think are, are interesting. Um, this is somebody who worked on a real system. Uh, it's an InfoQ editor, so presumably they were involved in the writing of the InfoQ article. But uh, you know, painful how painful the iterative development process is because of the lack of testing, or you know, not to mention the testing or lack thereof. 
I've used combinations of Terraform and AWS SDKs to create my API, but I wasn't really happy with how the whole development process had played out. Um, I feel like it's saying a lot of the things that we've been saying all along. It's this, you know, and it's coming from somebody that's not us, right? Which is that it's this problem of local development. It's this problem mm -hmm. of, I don't have the runtime. I have to deploy things to see if they work. You know, we spent... We spent a lot of time building really nice tools, <laughs> like, you know, in, in, in software engineering, like compilers and debuggers and code gen and all of this stuff. And, you know, when we move to the cloud, it kind of feels like this step back. We don't have any of these things and we're left in this cycle that, you know, I've observed developers like anecdotally, I've, I've, I've observed developers get irritated about like, oh, I have to keep redeploying this thing. And then I have to go to this console and check this error in this like unformatted cloud formation or something you know right and then and then people get incentivized to use these tools like terraform and stuff like this to kind of ease it because they're desperately grasping at things that can reduce that cycle right it's, it's, if as long as i can like find those things quicker that i don't have to deal with this long cycle which is like wasted productivity where i'm waiting for a jar to upload or i'm waiting for a cloud formation to redeploy an artifact to see if there's an error and you know one of these things where i don't have to get one error and then redeploy yet another and like kind of repeat that cycle over and over. I can get like all the errors and solve them and just redeploy and, and stuff like this. So I feel like this is kind of the overarching theme. And, you know, as much as I kind of critiqued a lot of the research bits from the paper, I, I do think it's a, a very laudable, uh, you know, um, goal and, and um, first stab at, at solving the problem, because I think it is a real problem in that, this is painful and bugs happen all the time. And when you think about it, like a lot of, you know, the stuff we do at chaos engineering, it's finding a lot of this stuff, right? Like I put a bad config up and so I have to mess the system up to see if my config for auto scaling works or to see if my failover config works or whatever, because we have no way of doing any of it locally, right? So <laughs> I think that this, this, run, this local runtime for cloud environments problem is not just serverless. I think it's microservices. I think it's everything. I think it's the idea that we resort to all of these other approaches because we don't have the ability to just like run a debugger locally and simulate some sort of condition yeah. on a real application. And uh, this, I think, is one in a number of many papers we could look at that tries to concretely address this for the serverless domain because when you get into microservices, it gets even harder because it's like, you know, microservices is almost worse because it's, more programming languages and more different servers and everything, right? You serverless is kind of this like focused microservice where it's really small services that you only can write in so many languages that can only do so many things. A microservice is kind of like a pathological case of that where it's like you could literally do anything. And now like and your your runtime is basically like a Linux container, right? And so we need like a lot of heavy tooling there to rule out stuff. And we still get it wrong because we still can't simulate AWS auto scaling or Azure, whatever, you know, whatever Azure thing or whatever IBM thing or whatever Google Cloud Platform thing, or whatever. Right. And, and I think um, just on the topic of like, you know, users trying to figure out what's wrong with their app and, and using the local experience for that, um, you know, like I, I think one of the core challenges in, in serverless is precisely that. Um, at some point, when something goes wrong on your production app, you have to ask, whose fault is it? Is it the vendor? 
or is my code wrong? And I think that is uh, is a something we're still trying to figure out how to do right. Um, particularly because you know users have less control or perhaps less visibility. Um, but the, the whole the whole point is we you know this is managed. Uh, so yes, I think a local local development experience is key to mitigate a big chunk of those problems. Uh, but I think that even if you have that, there's still some pain points. And that's okay. I mean, there's no perfect systems. But I, I, I think it's interesting uh, to call out uh, that, that almost like intrinsic challenge in the paradigm. And, and just one more point on the paper. Um, to be honest, like my, my, my perspective is uh, that my biggest criticism of it is that I wanted to see more of it. Like my biggest yeah, criticism of it, I was looking through the sections and I was like, this is really interesting, and this is a problem I've been thinking about too. And this is hitting many of the notes that uh, I think a lot of people in the space are thinking about. Um, but I think the 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 size, at least of this version of the paper, there might be a longer version we're not aware of. Of this version of the paper, I was like, okay, you know, you're describing a very good problem, and you're describing the the sketch of the solution. But show me the details, because I think yeah, that's, exactly. the details, I don't think we've sorted out. Um, so, yeah, that's yeah. excellent. Yeah, this is the, yeah, so this is paper was published at ICSI. It says ICSI 20 Companion. Um, it's a short paper. It's only four pages. So I'm assuming that this was a paper that accompanied a demo, because they have, like, a track that's, like, demos of applied stuff. So I'm assuming this paper accompanies, uh, like, a demo and probably a, some sort of demo presentation where, where they showed the thing for real. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think you're hundred percent on the mark. I think everything you said was great. I think it's really the, um, I think it's really, that's it. We wanted more, right? You wanted more from the implementation side. You wanted to know like, how the hell does this thing work? And I wanted more from the research side. I wanted to say it's a really hard ambitious problem. And I want to know the corners you cut to make it work for real. And I think that was kind of a, I think if you listen to the whole thing, I think you kind of get the general idea is that I think each of us was coming at it from a different perspective. And I, at least my perspective was very much from the academic side saying, like, tell me how it works. Like, tell me what you had to do to make it work for your case, <laughs> because I, it, it's a hard problem. Um, cool. Yeah. Uh, OK, so we'll get into like kind of our last section. So we're going to try to do like a little plus minus thing. Um, so before we started. Uh, we wrote down a plus minus what we thought was a really pro, like a positive of the paper, and then what we thought was kind of a negative of the paper. And so then uh, we'll reveal those, and then I guess what we'll do is we'll kind of revise what we said. We'll see how this works, right? Okay, so uh, David, I'll let you go first. What was your positive? Um, well, my positive is testability. Uh, like I was calling out that testing in serverless because it's such a... Such a abstract uh, programming model uh, where, where like the callout, you know, you cannot, you you usually have a hard time thinking about the cohesive whole. Uh, the testing is difficult, and I appreciate that the authors decided to focus on that area. Um, now that we've talked, I would phrase this slightly differently. Uh, You're keeping I, the same one, though. You're keeping the same positive. I'm keeping the same one, but I think that what I meant to say was actually local development. Because uh, I'm, 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 I think after this question, it's become a little clearer to me that more than testability, uh, the one of the key contributions is you can run this locally, 
you can smoke test this easily. I am, again, not sure at this point whether or not it addresses unit testing um, or, or the individual execution of particular uh, procedures. Um, but but, but I, I, I still think the, the main positive is they identified a core area that I don't think we sorted out um, in the field. The stability okay. development, yeah. Uh, okay, so I'll go with my positive, then we'll do the negatives, I guess. Yeah, so for my positive was, I came into this paper and basically, in the introduction, basically, like, I think four paragraphs into the introduction, I was impressed because I think it's very rare that you see a paper that targets a real problem. Um, I think that's great. I think it's, it's, this is a software engineering conference. They're looking at a real software engineering problem that's motivated by a real software engineering use case. Um, that's, that, that is a thing that probably developers are struggling with every single day. And so any paper that does that, I think gets a plus from me because I think it's very rare to see papers that do that. Um, and I don't think I'll really change that. I think that will remain my positive is that the positive thing was that it was ambitious. They tried to solve a real problem. I think I would probably just say a couple things around that saying like, it's great that they were able to produce a demo of this and show how theoretical contributions map to like concrete outcomes in a real thing that they really built for real. Um, so I would say that's kind of the positive real world use case. They took some theory things. It's relatively light on theory. I'll say it's relatively light, but they were able to at least connect like three core things to three outcomes or really it's one outcome in the paper, but kind of, come out to one real outcome and um, and do it really well and motivated from an industrial use case. I think that was great. Mm -hmm. Okay, all right, so you're negative. Yeah, the, the spicy bit. Uh, yeah, I think my negative was um, that it wasn't clear to me how well this generalizes. I, I think, and, and that applies in every dimension, that applies generalizing to uh, to different cloud providers, generalizing uh, to different document stores. Uh, like I wanted to see a discussion of that, and and I think after a discussion, the, the way that changes for me is that uh, that I think this really needed a limitation section. Uh, needed like yeah. this is this is what we cannot do, or like this is where it cut falls short, uh, which is just another way of saying like it's unclear to me how it, how it generalizes or how it doesn't. Um, so yeah. Uh, yeah, so for me, uh, my negative before was weak evaluation. Uh, basically, there's no evaluation. The evaluation is a demo and a video and a product on GitHub. Um, I will say I'll, I'll change that. So my, my, my negative after all of our discussion and all of this stuff is I'll say that um, I'm going to say basically the same thing as you. I, I phrased it a little bit differently when I wrote it down. I said that I want to know about the corners that have been cut. I want to say from the research perspective, they had to kind of They've added these annotations. Surely these annotations have some restrictions. Maybe they only support three databases or two databases or some one queue, whatever. So clearly, like the annotations and the compiler to the cloud formation and all of this stuff, there's clearly restrictions they have to place on all of these things. And I feel that's important to discuss because cloud formations are huge and can do a million things. And the problem is probably not tractable unless you make restrictions. And so I think that there's interesting academic work to say, 
you know, you could approach it in so many ways. You could say, like, what are the features most commonly used? What are the features that are most problematic, right? So you could come up with some metric to say most of the problems happen because of these things. So we only generate those things. That's one way. Another way is that, you know, um, maybe certain types of configurations are hard to generate and get right. And so you, you ask the developer for input or you modify your annotations to make it so you can disambiguate things that might be wrong or easy to get wrong, right? So I think that just saying like, oh, by having these annotations and compile it, we can come up with this right outcome. But really the challenge is figuring out like which subset of the things we're going to support. Why are we doing that? What are we auto-generating? And I feel there's a lot of work there that could be focused on based on industry to say, we've already got this partnership with industry. You should figure out what the challenges are and map the bugs and maybe kind of influence the design a little bit more from the problems that have been observed. Because I think generally speaking, having an annotation that can compile to any type of cloud formation error is probably impossible. And, and the counter example I would say right now is like schema evolution. I have to change a field in a database, the format of a field, and I need to deploy a new function. How do I ensure that I can change that field, but I don't break the existing functions when I roll out the new function? Like that's a very simple, common example that I think that by looking at what they presented in the paper, I can't even imagine how they would do. So I feel like it could benefit from that. And I feel like if the paper had a section to talk about this, open challenges, you know, research questions, open research questions, future work. I feel like that's a great section to talk about this, to say, these are the challenges. We're only thinking about these things. And these are the things that we need to do in the future and set other researchers up for continuing this. Because my fear is that this paper won't have a follow-up. <laughs> and if you had set it up properly, potentially it would. And other people would have kept working on this and we would see more evolution in this area. What I was wondering with respect to the conclusion of this uh, paper, and frankly, like I think in our discussion, we've been mentioning a lot about perhaps how we were surprised about the way this paper was structured and like the sections it had and the sections it didn't. And then I remembered you mentioned that, well, this has an accompanying demo. And I wonder, like, do other papers and other projects in this category of like, this is essentially uh, the preview to a demo, do they also follow this format? Like, I, I, I'm not sure. I'm not part of this community, so. Yeah, uh, so that's a problem. We probably should have done a little bit more background work to figure out exactly um, uh, what the paper restrictions were and, and what the other papers in that in that area look like. Um, so I feel as maybe it's a little bit of due diligence that, that we didn't do that we probably should have done. Um, I guess we were kind of, I guess most of my comments came from the point of view of like what this would be if it was a full 12 pages. Mm -hmm. So maybe, maybe my criticisms were a bit wrong there because potentially if the authors had more space, they probably would have done it on one hand. On the other hand, uh, maybe they had a full paper and it didn't get accepted. We don't really know, right? So it could have been that they had a full paper and they talked about all of this stuff and the reviewers didn't like it. And so they submitted a short paper. So, it, I mean, it could go either way, right? We could be, you could give them the benefit of the doubt and say that they had all this stuff worked out and it's really great. And they just decided to opt for the short paper format with the demo, where you could look at it a more pessimistic way to say that, you know, it's been a few years. Maybe there would have been a full paper if this stuff had been worked out to the reviewers. Um, yeah. To, to the reviewers' know. agreement or whatever, right? So you can look at it both ways. Um, mm -hmm. 
I was just saying kind of like, I feel like even in the short paper format, maybe this is a personal preference, but even in the short paper format, I feel like, I really feel like having a future work section, even if it was only a paragraph, I mean, even if they were restricted to this space, they still have like a third of a column in the in the version we're looking at where they could have talked about future work. So I feel like even in the short format, not having a limitations of future work section when there was available space feels like um, maybe feels like, yeah. yeah, maybe maybe it feels like that should have been done. Um, but again, we don't we don't really know. Right. We only can kind of talk about what we see. Um, I think this is a really great side. Though. Let me just make kind of a meta point here. I think this is a really great side, right? Because as much as I was super critical from an academic point of view, and maybe felt, you know, maybe I was a bit too critical, and you were a bit more positive than me, looking at it from an industrial point of view. Regardless mm-hmm. of that, we've talked a really long time about a four-page paper. Yeah, <laughs> and, and the only thing that we, the, the only thing that our major takeaway was, was that like this is a really great project. We're skeptical that it can work for real without making a bunch of limitations, and we wish the authors had talked about them, right? So I would say that this is like, right. I feel like it's a good, it's a good outcome for the paper, right? We're not saying we didn't like it. We just like we're hungry for more. Right. In a way, in a way, in, in, in a very meta way, I feel this way about every paper, <laughs> right? Uh, but yes, no, I think you're right. Uh, I, I think it's I do not feel this way about every paper, but <laughs> but I I probably read a lot more than. Yeah, I, I think you certainly do. Um, but yeah, I think there's a lot here, in, at least in this problem domain, to explore. Uh, and yeah, I just I kind of just wish I had more. So yeah, yeah same. Um, okay, share. cool. So that was that was Nimbus. That was uh, Nimbus. A really really short paper that um, that has a lot to think about. Actually, I think this. I think it came out a lot differently than we thought it was going to. Uh, but uh, I think we had a really great discussion. So yeah, I hope everybody enjoys listening to us talk about Nimbus. It's been a good time. Thanks for having All right. me. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for coming on, uh, David. It was great. And uh, yeah, I'll see you next time. I'll see you next time.